Vedas ordained and the rituals taught by the scriptures. All these am I, and the offering made to the ghost of the fathers, herbs of healing and food, the mantram, the clarified butter, I the oblation, and I the flame into which it is offered. I am the sire of the world, and this world's mother and grandsire. I am he who awards to each the fruit of his action. I make all things clean. I am home. and we will control all that you see and hear. You are about to participate in a great adventure. You are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind in living color on WTDR. Wow. Some of the scenes you will witness may appear to border on fantasy. Look. Yes. There's the images. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I say God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is your storyteller. I'm happy to be here with you, and I'd like you to join me. I realize what I'm about to say comes a great shock. However, using great presence of mind, I'm counting on you to respond appropriately. I don't know what this is all about. Oh, you want to know? Yes, if you don't mind. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. is John Sandbach. He's a highly respected astrology and tarot researcher, working professionally in these fields for more than 55 years. He offers private astrology and tarot readings and tutoring online and is the author of several books, including The Circular Temple, Astrology, Alchemy, and the Tarot. And his new book that we'll be talking about today is Soul Journey, through the Tarot, 
key to a complete spiritual practice, integrating numerology, astrology, Kabbalah, and the contemplative life. John, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. I'm so happy to be here. I think many people tend to think of the Tarot as a kind of parlor game or fortune-telling trick or a form of divination or psychic reading. What is the Tarot to you, and what do you see really going on in a Tarot reading, including the dynamic between the reader, the Tarot itself, and the questioner? Those are very good questions. What I see the Tarot as being is a description of the nature of reality and of how energies work, how the energies of the universe interact with each other, how they function, and how they can contribute to our own spiritual growth. Because we're all on a path toward enlightenment. All of us are going to reach enlightenment. It's not a question of whether we're going to reach it. It's more a question of when and how. And yes, the tarot has been thought of as a kind of a game that people play. People use it for entertainment, but it can serve a much higher purpose than that. When we look at a divinatory device of the Near East, the book called the Book of Changes or I Ching, that book has been taken seriously by people in China for many centuries. And that book is part of their spiritual tradition and spiritual history. Whereas the tarot, the spiritual part of it, in a way, has been kind of concealed. So there's almost like two camps. There's people that deal with it and work with it in spiritual terms versus people that look at it more for fortune-telling, prognostication, and just entertainment. And so my role in the reading is to attempt to, to describe to the person I'm reading for the information I'm getting. And the tarot functions as a psychic trigger. That is, it stimulates your own psychic awareness. And that's really, to me, the highest thing it can do. Because we have a part of ourselves, our inner self, which is truly all-knowing, that truly knows everything. And if we can tap into that part, we can access that for our own personal guidance. So I think of the tarot as a mirror. It mirrors that all-knowing part of ourself, sometimes called our higher self. And so what we're trying to do is see into that mirror and see what we're learning at the present time. So I try to use the information I'm getting through the tarot to guide the person I'm talking to. And a lot of times people don't understand what I'm saying. And that's to be expected because generally the cutting edge of where we're evolving is where we are learning and where we are learning is where we don't know something. And so I think the art of it is to put the information in terms that people can grasp and to try different ways of expressing it to help them to understand it. And a lot of times people think they understand the information, but yet there's more to it. There's deeper levels of it. And so trying to 
go into those so that they understand it more and more clearly. And really, ideally, I think a tarot reading should be a healing session where you're helping people to kind of tune up their spiritual self, to realign their focus in terms of their own growth. So that would be my inner reaction with someone who I'm doing a reading for. Yeah, reading your book and your description of the process made me think of a really good psychotherapy session that brings in these other elements, like you spoke of these energies and archetypes of the energies and of aspects of ourselves that most of us are not really familiar with, although we, of course, have some experience of whether we're aware of them or not. Um, could you talk more about the energetic properties of this and the archetypes and how we engage with them and how we tap into them? You spoke of the Torah as a kind of a mirror that triggers a kind of awareness. Yes. Well, let me talk about one of the more difficult energies. It's Arcanum 15, which in some decks is known as the devil. Now, each tarot card is ruled by either a planet or a sign. The major arcana in the tarot, which is a set of 22 of the 78 cards, each of those 22 cards is ruled by one of the 10 planets of our solar system or one of the 12 signs. And so Arcanum 15 is ruled by Saturn. And Saturn has been called in traditional astrology the greater malefic, meaning the worst, the biggest, the baddest energy there is, and is thought of as representing difficulties and challenges. And really, there's been a lot of negativity associated with that card. And it's interesting how in the astrology of India, that has been going on for many centuries, Saturn is thought of as the most spiritual of all the planets. And I think what this is about is about things we don't want to deal with any and all challenges that we have in our life. And the truth of the matter is that all of our challenges are there for a purpose, and it's for our own spiritual growth. And so one of the beings associated with Arcanum 15 is Baron Samadhi, and that comes to us from the voodoo religion. And Baron Samadhi is this fearsome figure He's a dark figure wearing a top hat and carrying a cane. And he's thought of often as very punishing and so therefore is feared. But Baron Samadhi, like the planet Saturn, which he connects with, Baron Samadhi never gives you anything you don't deserve. He always gives you back what you deserve. And one of the most wonderful events of my past couple of years of life is having a dream about Baron Samadhi in which I was in a car and we were driving to some event and I saw him walking down the sidewalk with his striped pants and waistcoat and cane, a black man with a top hat, and he waved to me and we asked if he needed a ride because I was being chauffeured there. I don't know why I had a chauffeur in the dream. And so Baron Samadhi came over and got in the car and we talked. I don't even remember what we talked about. But ever since then, I feel this wonderful connection with that figure of Baron Samadhi. 
And it's important for us to make friends with our challenges. Because if we think of our challenges as something we want to get away from, something we're afraid of, then we're setting up this adversarial energy between us and our difficulties, which makes them more difficult to overcome. So I talk to Baron Samedi on a regular basis, and it's wonderful. I've made friends with him. Any questions about that? Or, Well, that reminds me that in many traditions, the personification of death, or, or not even a personification, of, but a, a sense like in some traditions, they say death sits on your left shoulder, and you can always ask death for advice and, yes. and will always give you very relevant advice in any situation. Yes. So, so it sounds a lot like what you're talking about with Baron Samedi. Yes. Yes, it, that's that's exactly the same sort of energy. And it's interesting that there's a kind of a dual aspect to all of these cards, as well as the energies. Yes, very and, definitely. And the archetypes. And what we experience largely emerges out of how we we relate to them, whether we see them as like a crisis or an opportunity, which, you know, the flip side of the same coin, whether we, yes. we choose to run from it or try to run from it, you know, it's pretty much impossible to run from these things, except, you know, on a, a very temporary basis. And the challenge usually becomes more difficult as a result of that. Um, yes. Or whether we choose to embrace it. And in my natal astrology chart, I have a Saturn Sun conjunction at the midheaven. And, oh, uh, my. and I've always, not so much these days after many, many years, but much of my life just felt like a continual challenge and also like a sitting in limbo for eternity or eternities and just feeling so challenged by all of these kind of things and like never seeing any light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. Yes. So I can relate to this card that you were talking about in many ways. Yes. And you know, Tonio, a really important thing too is I feel like that maybe the real basis of the whole tarot is numbers. And so it's very important to look at the numbers on the cards. So the Saturn card, which is, as I said, the devil or Baron Samedi is 15. So that number 15 goes with that card. And just to give you an, an illustration of how the numbers work, 15 is the addition of one, two, three, four, and five. In other words, when you add those five numbers together, you get 15. And that's called a triangulation of a number. When we add everything up from one up to that number, we're triangulating the number. And the triangulation signifies fullness or completeness. And five Number five signifies learning. So 15 then would be a completion of a learning process. So that's kind of how those numbers work with that. And another thing too is that you can simplify the numbers by adding the digits together. So with 15, you can add one plus five and you get six. And six is actually the card of Venus. And so six is love. And so it's interesting how Baron Samedi, this scary figure who's going to dish your karma out to you, is actually the essence of love. 
In other words, the reason we go through these things is because it helps us to magnify our own love, love of not only ourself and of other people, but of the whole universe. So behind that scary Baron Samadhi is actually at root love. So I, I love that idea. Yeah, that's a fascinating thing to experience in life, that if we have the presence of mind and courage to go right through the heart of a challenge or what we're having to face, that on the other side or or at the heart of it is something profoundly different. And love really is like the core nature of the universe. Right. And the love going with the number six, six is a perfect number. And what that means is that everything that will divide evenly into it, if you add those numbers together, they equal six. What will divide into six is one, two, and three. Those three numbers go into six. You add them up together. One plus two is three plus three is six. So six is the first perfect number. So there's a very close connection between love and perfection. They're really the same thing. Now, numerology is interesting, but it can also be pretty confusing. Like you started out talking about Saturn, the number 15, and then moving to Venus, the number six. Right. And they're interrelated somehow. And yet they're, they're two different planetary bodies, two different archetypal energies. Right. So the significance of numbers in this way can be very tricky. And I can see how people listening to this who may only see numbers as like mathematical symbols and can't imagine anything beyond that would have a hard time grasping the relevance of what you're saying. Yes, that's really true. And you know, the deeper and deeper you get into numbers, the trickier and trickier they get. And, you know, numbers really appeal to the intellectual mind, but you can also deal with numbers on a more intuitive or feeling level. Like people often have numbers that they they just like. They they feel an affinity with that number. They feel drawn to that certain number or there are numbers that they don't like. And those can be very revealing. They can say a lot about, you know, the person's energy and what they're needing. Because generally, anything we're attracted to is what we need. And I have to be very careful with math. And even my own guides told me on this talk with you to be careful about getting too far into numerology because I love it. I mean, it's just one of my favorite things, but many people just don't relate to it. And that's okay. You know, I understand that. There are a couple of fascinating lines from the book that I wrote down where you say numbers are at the midpoint between the seen and the unseen. And you also say that numbers are living beings and that we can feel them and also communicate with them. Yes. I'd love for you to elaborate on that and then perhaps we can move on. Yeah. I have a very good friend named Elias Lonsdale and I think he's one of the greatest living astrologers. And we don't talk very often, but recently I called him and he gave me a reading. And in that reading, he mentioned that I was maybe one of the most animistic people that he knows of. 
And I was kind of surprised at that and I had to think about it. And it really is true. And what animism is all about is about how everything is alive. Everything. And this is a Kabbalistic idea. Even your desk, your books, your clothes, personal items, any material thing, it's alive. Concepts are alive. And numbers are concepts. So yes, they're living beings and they have energy. And their energy can be used for healing. I know a woman here in Kansas City who uses numbers at healing and she will simply look at you and say out loud these very large numbers, number after number after number. And she gets these just intuitively projecting these numbers at you for the purpose of healing. And you can really feel the power and the energy of her work as she does this. And the tarot is a living being. And the number system as a whole, like all numbers together, is another living being. And so we can ask numbers to help us. We can ask the cards to help us. What was the second quote? The first one was um, numbers being the midpoint between the seen and the unseen. Oh, yes. Well, you know, it's interesting with the number three, with a child, you can teach them three apples. See, here they are on the table or three cars, or even when they get a little bit more into concepts, three days, what three is. So you link the three with physical things. So that's the seen world. The unseen world is how you can have the idea of three, but not three of anything. It's just three. It's this disembodied thing. It's this non-material concept of three. And so that's the link between the seen and the unseen. Another thing that occurred to me while reading this, and and particularly reading your descriptions of the major arcanum, particularly the initial ones, was how closely it corresponded to the opening verses of the Tao Te Ching, which talks about how everything emerged from the one. Yes the unmanifest became two and then became the 10,000 things. And I loved your descriptions of the initial major arcanum, which paralleled that so beautifully. Yes. And of course, the lower the number is, the more universal the concept the more all-encompassing it is. So really, I think the hardest number to describe is number one. And really, I would say that the meanings given to Arcanum One are more about what we need to do with that one energy or how we work with it more than about what it is. Because according to Kabbalah, one is nearly indescribable. Because if I try to describe one, I have to use different words. And also, the minute I try to describe one, there's two things right there. There's one and there's me. So one is almost like beyond knowing. And so one is mind. That number signifies mind. And mind comes out of nothingness. That goes into Tibetan Buddhist philosophy. So one comes out of zero. One comes out of zero. So the zero arcanum in the tarot is where it all comes from. And so in a way, the zero card is the most important card in the deck 
in a sense. And that's the card of the fool. Now, it's interesting, too, that that zero card in the tarot is given actually two numbers. It's the unmanifest zero, but then it's also given the number 22. The 22 is about how that zero energy manifests in physical reality. Yeah, those early cards of the tarot, Arcanum 1, 2, 3, 4, they're the most universal principles in the tarot. They are the cosmic principles from which everything else comes. And one thing I want to point out about that too is one, two, and three are prime numbers, meaning the only thing that can be divided into them evenly is themselves and one. The first number we encounter that's not a prime number is four. And so four signifies the beginning of conflict. It's all about conflict. And I'm very interested in how the words we use, we always have this value we put on them. So when I say conflict, people immediately, you know, would tend to think something negative or something bad. But conflict can be a very good thing. It can be a very meaningful thing. In fact, conflict is really the source of creativity. So you can think of four as the beginning, the source of creativity. And it's interesting how it's ruled by Scorpio. And of course, Scorpio in astrology corresponds to the sexual organs. And so that's the creativity of the four. Then immediately, four is followed by five. And five is this beautiful harmonizing influence. It brings harmony into the conflict. It helps those forces of four to work together in a constructive manner. Any uh, questions about that or anything? Well, as you're saying that, you know, things are percolating up. When you described four being the birth of conflict, what occurred to me is as the creation comes into physical manifestation, things start bouncing off each other. Exactly. And and that's when you get the potential for both conflict and creativity. Yes. And then, of course, it reminded me of how, you know, as you go through all of the major arcana, it represents this cycle a natural evolutionary cycle that we cycle through repeatedly with every issue or every challenge or everything that we have to deal with in our lives. Exactly, yes. And it's such an evocative and beautiful map of that cycle. And of course, there are many different traditions of cycles, like you mentioned the I Ching. They have their own system of mapping the cycle, and they talk about it you know, as the cycle of change, of changes. And in the Tarot, it's also a cycle of changes, but it's not put in that language. It's put in a language of more direct representation of what's actually occurring on an energetic and archetypal and dynamic evolutionary level. Yes. And I find it so fascinating and and it's quite wonderful. That makes me very happy to hear that. I'm so glad that you appreciate that. And one thing I want to say, too, is that so in the tarot, we have this major arcana, these 22 cards we've spoken of. 
And then what's left over to make the 78 cards is 56 more cards that are called the Minor Arcana. And they are divided into four suits, wands, cups, coins, and swords, each suit having 14 cards in it. And one of the very new things that's in my book is how those Minor Arcana relate to the Major Arcana. I think I've related them more closely than anything else I've ever read about the tarot. And the way I've done that is by continuing the numbering system. That is, the major arcana ends at 22. Well, then in my book, 23 becomes the ace of wands, the beginning of the suit of wands. And then all the cards continue to be numbered from that onward until you get to number 78. And 78 is the princess or page of swords. So let me ask you this, Tonio, have you read other books on the tarot? Well, about 45 years ago, I read something from an old spiritual teacher of mine about the tarot, which he wrote about as a map of the human journey, both on the, uh, the mundane level as well as the spiritual level. And of course, there's no separation, really, but it can be divided up into the more mundane and the more um, esoteric. And one of the things that I found most fascinating about it was, and you talked about the dual nature of the fool card or the fool and the magician, which are, to my understanding, two different representations of the same card at different evolutionary stages and how you begin yes. you begin as the fool the naive young man in the rider weight deck he's about to step off a cliff and there's this little white dog yapping at his heels like warning him that <laughs> he's going to get into trouble and yet he yes. he is naively and innocently about to leap into the world with no cares or concerns whatsoever and then of course yes the journey of life unfolds, which now here's where I have some questions for you, because in the okay. in the Rider Weight deck, which is probably the most familiar deck for most people, the minor arcana have a lot of imagery in them. And one of the images that has stuck with me, you know, for many, many years is the three of swords, which is depicted as three swords piercing a heart. So yes. it, it's a it's a very devastating looking card. And yet yes. in your interpretation of the card, it's very different. So I'm I'm wondering how you feel about the way the minor arcana are depicted in various decks, because it seems to me that we can be overly influenced by the appearance of the cards, by the imagery on some of the cards, and how that can influence and mislead us in our ability to more directly connect to the cards intuitively. Yes, you're bringing up something I think is really important. And I have very mixed feelings about those pictures on the weight deck. Some of them really vibrate with me. Some of them I really relate to. They make sense. Other ones, not so much. One of the things that disturbs me is the way some writers on the tarot talk about some cards as 
being good or positive and other cars as being bad or negative. And I don't think it works that way at all. Each one of these cars is like a different energy. And so the energy can be used in a positive or a negative way. So every card has positive and negative potential. And I don't like the three of swords, that picture of the swords in the heart. That's always bothered me. And the one that really bothers me is the guy laying face down on the ten of swords with the ten swords stuck in his body. And one of the things I'm really into is humor. I think humor is a great teaching device. That guy with the ten swords stuck in him laying face down, I like to refer to that card as the acupuncturist. (laughs) So (laughs) he's just getting an acupuncture treatment, you know. But yeah, I'd love to know who designed those pictures. Where did they come from? And I don't know if that information's even available. I don't think it is. I've never read about that. The original tarot decks, the earliest known ones, did not have imagery on the minor arcana. They only had, say, on the six of coins, there'd be six coins. Or on the seven of swords, there'd be seven swords arranged in some sort of a pattern with no other picture. And I like the idea of pictures on the minor arcanum, putting pictures on them. But on the other hand, you don't want to limit them too much or cause people to think that they mean just that one thing as signified by the picture. Yeah, it can be difficult enough to recognize and to even trust our intuition as it is. Right, exactly. So considering that, what decks do you recommend to people? Oh boy, that's a hard one. I love the Church of Light deck. That's a black and white deck. And I want to say, too, that the book that my tarot book is most like or has the most vibrational affinity with is the Sacred Tarot by C.C. Zane. That's the book that I first learned from. And the deck that goes with that book is the Church of Light deck. And I love that deck. And You know, there's a woman named Hilma Af Klint, K-L-I-N-T, and she was an abstract artist. And this group of women got together recently, and they put together a tarot deck, which is abstract pictures in color. And I think they're beautiful. I love that deck. It's wonderful to look at. And it has just a great vibrational quality. But I don't know. That's kind of a hard question for me. I look at a lot of decks and I always find things about them I like and then things that I don't like. And so, yeah, the Church of Light's my favorite. What about for people who are totally new to the Tarot, who want to just begin their exploration? Oh, Church of Light. Okay. Yeah, definitely. I'm trying to get Inner Traditions to publish my own deck. And they said they want to wait and first see how my book does. And then if it does well, they'll probably publish a tarot deck to go along with the book. Yeah, your your deck is a gray deck, you could say, in contrast to the black and white deck that you... Yes. And probably it would end up being done in color. So that gray would be changed to color. And I'm very, very color sensitive. I wrote a book called The Mysteries of Color. And... Different colors vibrate with different cards. So I feel like it would be important to have the right colors on each card. 
Yeah, there seems to be a very synesthetic aspect to all of this. Oh, very definitely. Very definitely. And you know, I think the more you use the tarot, the more you get into that part of it. I think those things ultimately are more powerful than the intellectual part. You can just feel vibrations coming from the cards. And I think reading from that level is a great thing. See, that's a wonderful thing is that someone can learn a lot about the tarot and know about all these different things I'm talking about. But really, somebody else might just pick up a deck of cards and just by the feeling of the cards, be able to lay them out and do readings for people with very little studying. And I think that's a great thing. Yeah, it seems like the most important thing is to energetically connect with the deck, with the cards, and with the dynamic that's occurring in the moment. Yes. And that's another thing, too. Are you familiar with Alejandro Jodorowsky? I am familiar with some of his movies. He actually did a movie about one of my first spiritual teachers. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. El Topo. Oh, oh, yeah. That's a great movie. No, it's not El Topo. Um, no, it's... The Mountain. Yes, The Mountain. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. Yes, that's a really wonderful movie. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, Jodorowsky wrote a book on the tarot. And I think it's one of the best books out there. Other than mine, of course, it's a great book. And he works with the Marseille deck. And that's the other deck I would recommend to people using. That is the oldest complete tarot deck published in the 14th century in France, in the city of Marseille. And that deck doesn't have pictures on the minor arcana. It just has the wands, cups, coins, and swords. And I think that's a very good deck to use, too. And that's the deck Jodorowsky uses in his book on the tarot. So getting back to the fool and the magician, you know, the evolution of the fool, it's interesting how the major arcana begin at the original beginning, and then they end at like the beginning of the journey with the fool. Exactly. Yes. I think of the Ouroboros, the oh, snake yeah. swallowing its own tail. It makes a circle. And so the tail of the Ouroboros is like Arcanum 1, and then the head of it swallowing the tail is Arcanum 22. And you know, another interesting thing about that is if you number the cards 0 to 21, you know, take off the 22 for a minute and let it be show up as the 0, you get three sets of 7, 7, 7, and 7 to make the 21. And the fraction 22 sevenths, like 22 over 7 as a fraction, is very close to the number pi, which is a circle. And so I think of the vibration of the tarot as circular. The tarot definitely vibrates with circles, whereas the I Ching vibrates with squares. I'm just curious how you see I Ching as being square in nature in that way. Well, the square, of course, is four. And like if you square the four, you get 16. And then 16 times four is 64. So all of those are squares based on four. And there's 64 hexagrams in the I Ching. Mm -hmm. Yep, that makes sense. 
There's this question, too, about where the tarot even came from. And they don't really know, but I've gotten a lot of psychic information on this. You know, there's this book called the Zohar, which is the most important text of the Kabbalah. The Zohar and the Kabbalah really, in a sense, are the same thing. And the Zohar is 22 volumes long. And I feel, and many other people also have noted, that the 22 cards of the Major Arcanum correspond to the 22 volumes of the Zohar. And I have had visions of how the tarot was created by a group of very wise people, enlightened people in the city of Fez in North Africa, and then carried from there to Europe. And that the purpose of this was for the contemplation of the energies of the Zohar, tapping into the Zohar. And that's the other thing that I found fascinating about your book is the way you connect the Kabbalah and the Tarot and integrate the two. Yes. Could you talk about how you see that working together? Yes. And to do that, maybe talk about some basic principles of Kabbalah. You know, I knew about Kabbalah a long time before I really studied it. And I didn't really want to get into it because back in the 1970s and 80s, when I was in my early stages of working with the tarot, all the stuff you could read on the Kabbalah was this really super intellectual, detailed stuff with all these different diagrams in it and things like that and strange words to describe different principles and all that. And part of me is very intellectual oriented and I would have liked to kind of done that, but I just didn't want to go down that rabbit hole. It just felt like, oh, wow, I could just get overtaken by that. you know. So I'm just going to leave that for later. And then arising in New York City was the Kabbalah Center, who the head of which is Rav Berg. And what they've done in that center is they've applied the Kabbalah to modern life in this very simple, practical way. And they've stated the basic ideas of the Kabbalah in a very understandable and obviously meaningful fashion. And I love it. I just love what they've done. And one of the primary principles of the Kabbalah is restriction. That is, you are this spirit, this consciousness, and you've been alive forever. You've been alive for an eternity. And then you're going to leave this body in this lifetime. And then you're going to be alive for another eternity after this lifetime. So you are an undying consciousness. And when you come into this world, you end up being restricted. You know, you're restricted to your ethnic background, the fact that you're a man and not a woman, you're restricted by your level of intelligence and by your society certainly has a restrictive effect on you. And all these restrictions are for the purpose of growth, the growth of your own awareness, the growth of your own consciousness. We're always arguing against our restrictions, how we're so limited and, you know, we don't like our limitations, but actually our limitations help us to grow. That's the purpose of our limitations. And I think that wisdom is very much contained 
in the tarot. And then another very important idea of the Kabbalah is about ego and how they equate ego with Satan. Satan is our enemy. The ego is our biggest problem. And so as we evolve, what happens is the ego becomes purified. We, in essence, let go of the ego. We overcome the illusions that the ego creates. And that wisdom is also really found in the tarot. Yeah, that, that totally corresponds to what you were saying about how the Kabbalah talks about life as restriction. And our perceptions, our egoic perceptions are restrictions of our ability to actually perceive and connect to and relate to reality. So we never really know reality from the egoic perspective. Exactly, yeah. And in that way, because everything we're perceiving is actually an internal construction of reality, numbers are a part of that, and they can be used as tools for insight. And that's something that occurred to me because I struggle with numbers and numerology. I'm, I love playing with numbers, but as you mentioned, the more you get into it, the more complex and more out there you can get with it, and you can really get lost in it. So, oh, yeah. So it's like you have to use your intuition in a much more grounded way to maintain a kind of relevance with our relationship with numbers, as well as with the outer appearance of the world around us. So in a sense, numbers aren't any less real than what we perceive as reality. Yes, exactly. And, you know, science keeps discovering these things that radically change our perception of reality. I think a lot of that started with the discoveries of Albert Einstein and the discoveries of quantum physics. And now those things are changing too with ideas about, well, what is dark matter and that sort of thing. And so I see it as a conflict between spirituality versus materialism. And materialism likes to think that everything out there in the world is real and is important and that our inner world of our feelings and thoughts you know, that's just not important. And it's good to just kind of ignore that because it's not real. Whereas the truth of the matter, I'm convinced in my heart, the truth of the matter is the inner world is the important one. And not only that, there is no outer world. The outer world doesn't even exist. This comes from Tibetan philosophy. All this outer world stuff you see is an illusion. It's an illusion. It's all you. You are in your inner world at all times. And of course, quantum physics says the same thing. Yes. It's only when we focus our attention on any particular aspect of what's often called the holographic field that we collapse that energetic field into a single state in space and time. Yes, But that's really just a momentary glimpse in a 
kind of tangible way of the infinite. Yes. Yes. And yet we, in our society, in our culture, in the way we've been brought up, we have been brought up to believe that that is the ultimate reality. Exactly. And we're encouraged all the time to kind of ignore our inner realm, unfortunately. And that brings up ideas or thoughts in my mind about, you know, where we're headed as a race, as a group of people. And I think one of the most important things is we're all learning. We're being pulled toward using our intuition more, getting more and more in touch with our own intuition. And, you know, these people having encounters with extraterrestrials, it's interesting how in so many of these descriptions of encounters, the extraterrestrials don't talk to each other because they don't need to. In other words, they're like in mental communication with each other all the time. And people will even say in encounters with space beings that they'll talk to them through, just through their head. They can get what they're saying, you know, just through their own mind. I think we're moving toward being that way where we can psychically communicate with each other and where we can just know things. I mean, I, I think we can just know things now. It's just we're not letting ourselves into that information. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. We have too many layers of conditioning that, yes. that argue our way out of being able to do what is actually innate to all of us. Yes, and also that relates to what you were saying before about, you know, the destiny that we're headed for as a species, like we're heading for a crisis that will require us to approach things in a completely new way, a way yes. that, that we can't even conceive of at this point yet. Yes. And, you know, one uplifting concept of Kabbalah is that when dreadful things are going on, or terrible tragedies or disasters, even though these things are terrible, they offer these huge opportunities for the light to come in, for the spiritual light to break through. So that's what I'm looking for to happen more and more as time goes on. Yeah, and how if we can face, you know, our own worst imagination of what's unfolding in front of us and not shy away from it. That's when something magical opens up at the heart of it into, in a sense, a whole new realm of possibility. Yes. Yes, but exactly. But again, you cannot know that in advance. You literally have to take that sort of leap of faith and step directly into the fire. Yes. And you know, a lot of what you're talking about there, what I hear in it is Arcanum 10, which is the wheel of fortune. And Arcanum 10 is also like the wheel of karma and how the wheel of karma is circular because we keep doing things over and over and over again. One of the funniest things, when I first started doing past life readings for people a long time ago, I would be doing this past life reading and the person would say but that's just like what's going on in this lifetime <laughs> and i'd say yeah you're doing it again we do things over and over again because we're trying to overcome them or get them right or understand them and 
the wheel of karma, that wheel symbolizes our conditionings and how we cling to our conditionings. We're afraid to let go of our conditionings because even if they're negative, they're the known. They're like our security blanket. And the more we become spiritually empowered, the more we're able to just let go of those things, which is taking a risk. It's like a leap of faith to do that. But it can open us up to whole new worlds. And that's kind of like the ultimate manifestation of death. Yes. Yes. You know, what makes death so fearsome is materialism. The more you let go of the materialist way of thinking, you know, I'd say maybe one of the most important events in my whole life was I had a friend who was 92 years old in the hospital, and there was a lot of other people in the room, and I went over and I sat down beside him. He was in a coma, and I took his hand, and he squeezed my hand while in the coma, and while I was holding his hand, he died. Oh, Tonio, it was the weirdest experience. I could feel him expanding, filling the whole room, and then it just felt glorious. It felt like it felt wonderful. And I just felt like totally euphoric from it. And I stood up and this woman was sitting on his bed and she was crying. And I thought, wow, what is she crying about? Why would she cry? This is great. And so I started walking out of the hospital and I'm walking down the corridor and I can feel him walking right beside me. And he says, where are we going? And I said, well, I, I have to go to work. And he said, well, what are we doing here? And I said, uh, well, you just died. And he said, no. I said, yeah. And he looked kind of perplexed. And I said, you know, you don't have to worry about that. Now you can think about it later if it's too confusing right now. And he goes, oh, okay. He says, you know, I feel great. <laughs> this was such an incredible experience for me. Ever since that experience, I've had no fear of death whatsoever. There's nothing to be afraid of. We've all done it many times before already. That's such a wonderful story. I love that. Oh, it was such a gift to me. I've always had that intuitive sense about death as well. I just don't have that foreboding sense of death that our society seems to be obsessed with. Yeah. Well, it's wonderful to be freed of that. It's yeah. just a great thing. Yeah. As we've been talking, I've been thinking about your Sun-Saturn conjunction. You know, the Sun is all about life's meaning. And Saturn gives everything it touches depth. And so you're somebody who thinks deeply about things. And you can't be satisfied with superficial explanations of anything, but are always looking for something deeper. And that's one way of expressing that Sun-Saturn. And it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, I'm also always looking for other ways of seeing things. Yes. It's like, you know, that old saying that all roads lead to Rome, that there's so many different angles into the same ultimate truth. Oh, yes. And, and I'm utterly fascinated by how everything interconnects in that way. It's just wonderful, isn't it? It's just glorious. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the ways that I get those wonderful, you know, rewarding dopamine hits. <laughs> yes. Yes. What sign is your moon in? Do you know? 
Leo. A Leo moon. Great. So your moon is ruled by that sun because the sun rules Leo. And of course, you know, Leo is all about expression, the need to express things. And on a spiritual level, Leo expresses divine wisdom, expresses universal truth. So that's great. And that's another thing about the tarot, you know. So each one of these cards ruling a planet or a sign, if you're looking to study astrology and want a grounding in the understanding of the planets and signs, I don't think you could get a better one than from looking at my book because it will set you on a, a spiritual path of what the spiritual meaning of these planets and signs are. Yeah, more more ways of of interconnecting all of these wonderful ways of seeing the nature of, of everything, the dynamics and the energies and, and the archetypes that can really help tune us into and return us back to what we already know inside. Yes. Yeah. And yet we are faced with the restriction of being born into these physical bodies in these materialistic cultures that make it very difficult to access that. Yes. And hopefully that over time will change. You know, I mean, our culture should be something that supports us, not something that thwarts us. And I think in so many ways, the culture does thwart us, but more and more people are becoming aware of that and are bringing that to light and attempting to do things to change that. And I think that's such a good thing that that's happening. Mm -hmm. So another thing I'd like to get into is the importance of how we frame and clarify the questions that we want answers about and how you approach the asking of a question, whether it's a question that you have or helping a client clarify and frame their question. Yes. Well, one thing that people are prone to do is they ask questions that are to be answered with a yes or a no. And I always try to avoid those because those kind of questions don't tell you much. And also, they really disempower the person asking them because then, well, you're just getting this answer and it implies that there's really nothing much you can do about it. You know, it's either going to be a yes or a no. So the basic guideline I try to follow is that a question should be one that empowers the person asking it. So a good question to ask is, what am I to learn from this situation? Or what is this situation trying to tell me or teach me? A good example, let's say that someone has a bad headache and they've had it for a long time, days, and they ask a tarot reader, what am I supposed to be learning from this headache? Well, if the tarot reader can adequately communicate to the person what that headache is trying to tell them or teach them, then if the person listens to that and learns or assimilates whatever it is, obviously there's not going to be any more use for the headache. And so it'll go away. And that's the nature of how problems work, I think. Now, of course, that illustration I gave was very simple. 
many of our problems are of long standing and maybe the learning needs to come in layers. And so we're learning all sorts of things. It can take time, you know, and it won't necessarily be easy to solve the problem. But what am I learning from this situation is a very good approach, a good question to ask. Or another way of putting it is, what are the vibrations or the energies around this situation? A great way of studying the tarot, something that I do and love doing, is do three cards for the day. It doesn't have to be the day you're on. It can be for the next day, or you can do three card readings you know, for the whole week. Or if you want to just draw one card for the day, you can do that too. And then as the day goes on, you can contemplate how what's happening in that day, what's going on, mirrors the energy of that card. And that helps you to be more in harmony with the energies of the day. So that's that's a really good approach to take. Another thing, too, is that I'm a little dubious about people that ask questions about other people. Like sometimes you'll get old people who will ask questions about their children's marriage or their children's children or about other people they know or like that. I think this weakens the power of the tarot. What's more important is to say to that person, well, what do you want to know for yourself? Or how can I help you with you and your personal challenges? Another good question to ask is, what do I need now? What is it that I need now? That's a great question to ask. And also, you know, one of the ways of empowering both the tarot and yourself is if you feel like you're getting advice from the tarot, if you do something based on that advice, take action, take positive action based on that advice, it helps to connect you more fully to the tarot and it helps draw in more information. Because if you're just continuing to ask questions and you're getting answers, but you're not doing anything based on those answers, then it's kind of like, well, you're accumulating these answers, but they're not really having any true meaning for you because you're not working to modify your behavior based on them or create something new in your life based on them or like that. So it is very important to try to take action based on the information that you're getting from the reading. And that relates back to the kind of holographic nature of the Tarot and how the Tarot is really just a part of us as we're a part of everything. And if we don't respond in that sort of way to a reading, then we're essentially dismissing our own intuition and telling ourselves that we don't respect it. Yes. And the more we do that, the less we're going to allow ourselves or give ourselves access to it, or, or the less inclined we'll be to even listen to ourselves, you know, in yes. that interdynamic way of our intuition listening to us, as well as yes. our listening to our intuition. Because again, it's an, inter, it's an inner interdynamic relationship going on with all of these things. It very much is. Yes. That's true. And you know, so many people, when they ask questions, the ego 
tends to turn its attention to the past to gain some sort of sense of security or to have a fantasy about the past and for comfort, or it turns its attention toward the future, often out of fear, worrying about, you know, what's going to come. And one very great rabbi once said, there's no reason to worry about the future if you just stick with every moment of your life and work on making it beautiful and rich and enjoying it. Then he says, the future is going to completely take care of itself. You'll have no worries about the future. And I've always loved that idea. Yeah. Yep. We tend to move toward the future through our rear view mirror, in a sense. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Whether that's in a positive or a negative way. And ultimately, that robs us of the future. It robs us of the present which then, of course, robs us of the magic of the possibility of the future. Yes. And you know, this whole idea of enlightenment that we're all moving toward, one way of talking about enlightenment is that it's totally be able to live in the present so that we're not pulled away from it by worrying about the past or the future. Exactly. Enlightenment is already here, present for the, for the experiencing if we allow ourselves, if we're able to, to just fully be here. Yes. And, and it's really hard to do that because our attention, our ability to maintain that just flits away at the slightest little thing over and over and yes. over again. So Arcanum 1 is ruled by the planet Mercury. And one signifies the mind. And it's interesting that the metal mercury is a metal that's liquid at room temperature. And there's a book by Primo Levi called The Elements. And he was a chemist. And he would bring a bottle of mercury home from the lab with him. And he put it in a bowl. And he'd stir it with a stick. And he said he came back a half hour later. And it was still swirling. That, that metal is that active. And that's like the mind. The mind is just active, active, active all the time, always doing things, doing things, doing things. And so when you said the word flitting away, that's a perfect description of what the mind likes to do. And, you know, I think a very powerful meditation technique is not to control the mind, but to let it do whatever it wants to do, but with whatever it's doing to maintain inside that still space. In other words, so that like you really become two things, you dissociate from your mind, let it do whatever it's doing, but you maintain that, that still center point in yourself. You focus on that. Yeah, it's a kind of an interesting paradox, staying in the still point in the middle of it, and also at the same time, being the spaciousness that surrounds those mental phenomena. Yes. Maharishi Mahesh Yogi said that enlightenment or reaching cosmic consciousness was a very dualistic, very divided state. You know, people like to think, oh, you know, if I reach enlightenment, then it'll all be like unified. But no, it's actually a very divided state because you're living in this 
phenomenal world of time passing and you're aging and you're moving toward death and all that. While at the same time, you're also simultaneously centered perceptually in the knowledge of your own eternal nature. So you're aware of both things at the same time. Right. Kind of similar to our relationship with death or the death card. Yes. Yes. And I love the death card with the skeleton on it and the rainbow in the background. And of course, the number of the death card is 13. And you know, 13 is associated with the moon because in a yearly cycle, there's about 13 new moons. And 13 is also a number associated with water. That brings up something else that I think is very, very important. Our society is moving from being centered in a male consciousness toward more of a feminine consciousness. And as we move toward that feminine consciousness, everything will tend to become more soft and more loving and more feeling-oriented and not so much into trying to dominate each other or dominate nature and those kind of things. Yep. And we don't have much time left to, uh, to get there. No, we don't. We don't. And it's so easy for people to get caught up in fear or to get caught up in worry. But another major idea of the Kabbalah is the need to be proactive. That is, if you're watching news on what's going on with Israel and Gaza, you know, you can react by feeling dismayed or feeling fearful, worried or sad or whatever. But then you can also project to those areas of the world white light project love, project healing. And someone might feel, oh, but I'm just one person. How could that affect? There can be other people that are doing it too. And your thoughts affect everything. That's one thing that I think humans are coming into a fuller knowledge and realization of. Thoughts have power. And the thoughts we project can have a tremendous healing force in the world. I love that. I love that notion. Yeah. I work with that as well. That's wonderful. Yeah. At the end of the book, you talk about what you call Tarot musings. Yes. And I'm wondering if there are any recent musings that you have that you would like to share with us right now, or if you have any new fantasies of how the Tarot could be used beyond how it's currently being used or you know, new ideas of what's possible. Well, that's interesting you bring that up because there really is something very strong there. Let me ask you, are you familiar with like stuff like flower essence remedies, like Bach flower remedies and things like that? Yeah. Well, I'm thinking the tarot could be used in that manner, that you could actually take a card and sit a little vial of water on it and ask for the energies of the card to charge that water to enter that water, and then to use those as a healing device. Now, that's a more physical way of doing it, because the water is a physical thing. You could also simply just lay that card on your forehead or on your heart center and ask to take in the energies of the card and anything it has to teach you or anything it would like to show you. And this could be very therapeutic. 
So I'm thinking about actually doing a whole book of working with the cards in that way. Yeah, that sounds like it opens up a kind of cascading realm of possibilities. Yes. Which is why I loved the notion of Tarot musings. Yes. So much can come out of that because the Tarot is like a gigantic book. You know, the Zohar is 22 volumes long, and it feels like the Tarot has in it all of that wisdom and even more. So you can explore it just forever. And more and more will come out of that in terms of wisdom and knowledge. Yeah, so much has yet to be written. So much has yet to be experienced. Yes. Yes, very definitely. Well, I've enjoyed this conversation immensely. I have too. It's been wonderful talking to you. And um, I'd love to see your whole chart sometime. I'd look, look at it. That would be very interesting to me. I'll send you the details. Okay, great. This has been great. I've so enjoyed this. It's been many years since I've really thought about, well, I've, I've thought about the Tarot a lot. The recurring theme of the fool to the magician has been one of those guiding notions of the circular, cyclical nature of our lives and everything we deal with in our lives. So yes. it's been very helpful in that way, even though I haven't really done any work directly with the cards themselves. Well, it sounds like you've been speaking with some tarot spirits. Yeah, I I seem to have some of that kind of uh, stuff going on on some levels. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. I'm yeah. sure that you do. Yeah. Yes. Even though they're not particularly tangible to me most of the time, if ever. Yes. Yeah. They're working on a subliminal level. Yeah. Which actually reminds me of something that you wrote at the beginning of the book, and I'll quote it. You say, each of the 22 major arcana cards is a home to a great consortium of spirit beings of many different kinds, angels, plants, numbers, and gem devas, fairies, gnomes, salamanders, undines, elves, and trolls. These beings love to speak to our souls and use the great wealth of their creative resources to continually find new ways to connect to our human realm. That's such a beautiful, evocative, and expansive thing to wrap our little minds around. Yes, it is. It is. I love swimming in that sea. Yeah, so do I. I spend a lot of time in liminal space with, with things like that. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, you're a very cosmic being. I can feel that. And obviously, so are you. <laughs> yes, takes one to know one. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on the show and for this wonderful and delicious conversation. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Tonio. It's a wonderful gift, and I really appreciate it. And I'll be in touch. Okay, thank you very much. Bye. Bye-bye. John Sandbach is a highly respected astrology and tarot researcher working professionally in these fields for more than 55 years. He offers private astrology and tarot readings and tutoring online and is the author of The Circular Temple, Astrology, Alchemy, and the Tarot, 
and his new book is Soul Journey Through the Tarot, Key to a Complete Spiritual Practice, Integrating Numerology, Astrology, Kabbalah, and the Contemplative Life.
And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. 